All right, take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to finish, actually, the message that we did not get to finish a couple of weeks ago. And uh, we didn't meet last week because of the ice storm. I'm not sure what we have in store for us this Friday or Saturday, but it looks like we might get a little bit of, of uh, I think uh, Scott calls it celestial dandruff. I've heard that term from him more than once. I, I kind of like that term. Uh, but it's gonna, looks like it might be a little bit on the heavy side and especially the further north and, uh, maybe a foot plus, certainly up by Mark and Linda. So we didn't finish this for a number of reasons. One was because of maybe some of the thoughts that continued to fill my, uh, my mind as I was speaking on these things and, and then we had such a rich discussion afterwards and we're, we're thankful for that. One of the things that I've said about this chapter is probably a, a more significant in terms of theology than many other sections of text. It's a lot different than, for example, some of the things that we're seeing, for example, in Matthew chapter 5 as we're going through the Sermon on the Mount and we're looking at some of the antitheses of what Christ is saying there with respect to the law and the misrepresentation of the Word of God by the Pharisees and the scribes and so on and so forth. Different because there's a lot of, of interesting historical context there. Historical context that, that makes the word of God in those senses maybe more alive to us because of the things that are taking place in the background here. One of the backgrounds here is that for some reason there are some people in Corinth who are doubting the resurrection. And so let's read the text. It begins in verse 12. We'll read down through verse 19 and Maybe just a very, very short review, but we'll pick up where we left off. Paul writes to the church, beginning in 1 Corinthians 15, 12. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. Or if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. If you glance up to the, the verses before this, the first 11 verses, one of the things you'll notice is the stress that he's placing on the resurrection. He kind of gives us the core of the gospel and what the foundational aspects, things that you cannot compromise on, things that there's no no room, no wiggle room to, to make any kind of move away from these truths. And yet, kind of amazingly, there are um, professing evangelicals that deny these truths. And he talks about those things that are of first importance. Notice in verse 3, he says those things that he's received. He's received those directly from Christ, he's received those things directly as a 
uh, as a revelation of the truth of the Word of God in his life. He goes on to talk about those core issues, and then he begins to mention the quality of the witnesses, the quality of the witnesses being, for example, he says to Cephas, that is Peter, Simon Peter, that is Peter the rock, that is the one who denied Christ three times, who was in John 21 restored. Probably he's mentioned there because unbeknownst to us, he did appear to Cephas. We may not have that recorded, but because this is inspired scripture, it says that he appeared to him first. Therefore, for whatever reason, he appeared to him, and he did that then to the twelve. Remember, the twelve, there is the generic phrase for the apostles. The twelve is really the eleven, because it's minus Judas Iscariot, but the twelve are just referred to in general. So, And then he moves from the quality of the witnesses to the quantity of the witnesses. He begins to talk about more than 500 brethren uh, all at once, and then he says in verse uh, 6 there, he says most of them remain. In other words, many of them, if not most of them, are still alive at this time. If you don't believe me, if you don't want to trust what I'm saying, go ask them. Uh, some have fallen asleep, and again, that term fallen asleep is the term for believers who die, for those who die in Christ. He makes reference of that here in the text that we read tonight. And then, of course, he says, last of all, to one untimely born, and that untimely born is a kind of a freakish thing. That's really what it means. It's kind of an aborted kind of thing. It's a, it's a, it, it's really what it means, just kind of a freakish birth. And then he says, he appeared to me also, of course, as his testimony and being the least of the apostles. But then I want you to notice in the text we read, if you jump down a little bit, he actually circles back to the to the reference of the witness of the resurrection. And the interesting thing is, is that he actually refers to God the Father as a witness of the resurrection. I don't know if you've noticed that or not. I don't know if you picked up on that. But if you look at verse 15, he says, Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of who? Of God. Because we testified against God that he raised Christ. He's actually referring to the first person in Trinity there as a witness and saying, if you don't believe this, basically what you're doing is you're testifying against God. Amazing, isn't it? And if you've been following our study in 1 Corinthians, you know Paul is stressing these things. The stress of the necessity, of the historicity of the resurrection, the Jesus Christ has risen. The tomb is empty. We do not serve a dead or dying Christ. We serve a risen Christ. We serve a risen Savior. And it's necessary. It's it's absolutely core to your faith. It's core to salvation. And it's certainly not a matter of debate. And he's told us that this is part of the gospel. And by these things and trusting to these things and holding fast to these things, we have a surety of salvation. And we didn't stress too much of this, but actually there is something that probably we should emphasize a little bit. And it's what Paul makes clear here. It's implied in the text. It's implied in the, in the, the text by uh, other words. But he basically is pointing to the fact that the gospel that saves is something that you cannot lose. 
there's a perseverance of the saints here that emerges. And holding fast to these things, that you will be saved. We made mention of it, maybe of the fact how Paul contends that we are saved through the gospel of grace and not just pointing to the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord. He tells us, and the church, he says in 1 Corinthians 1, chapter 1, how he was happy as well not to baptize anybody. I'm glad I didn't baptize any of you. And then he remembers a few people. He, meant, he, he mentions a couple of other people, but he says, by and large, I didn't baptize many, if not most of you. And he was pleased about that because of the division that was taking place. Uh, people were saying, I'm of Paul, and I'm of Apollos, and I'm of Cephas, and I'm of Christ, right? So that sectarianism that kind of emerges, that he, he tamps down in chapter 2, he kind of makes clear that baptism is not really the important thing. And that's implied here as well, that baptism, although it is a function of the obedience we have in Christ, it's not necessary for salvation. And that's really another important key, because you talk to a lot of people who, in some way, shape, or form, say something to the effect of, you know, i got to get the water thrown on my back before it's too late, because I don't want to go to hell, when in fact that really doesn't save you. So... You know, this, this is one of the things, and that's why Paul basically was glad he hadn't baptized them, just a few. And so he preaches the gospel and he says that also there's a, there's a pleasure in the fact that not only he didn't baptize, and the important detail is that we need to keep in mind is the stressing of the importance of one thing. And really the one thing that he is stressing here comes down to one absolute description that continues to be the theme of chapter 15, which is why there's so much theological weight here in this chapter, and it comes down to the resurrection. Hands down, nothing else. The empty tomb, that's it. And so he begins to address, if you look at verse 12, he begins to address those who begin or have had doubts of the resurrection. He says, now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So he's he's aware that there is a there are a group of people within the congregation at Corinth who are either doubting and or not believing the fact that Christ rose from the dead. So these are the important events that uh, Paul is pointing out, certainly part of the gospel. And I have to say it's extremely important that we know what the scriptures say about it and that we believe it because as you know, of course, the idea of the resurrection has always been under attack. It's not just since the church at Corinth. It's not just since Christ has risen from the dead. In fact, J. Gresham Macon, who, uh, that great, um, Presbyterian, he made a statement that impressed a lot of theologians when he said, and I'm quoting him, he said, you say, my friend, that you have never seen a man who rose from the dead after he has been laid in the tomb. Quite right, neither have I. You and I have never seen a man who rose from the dead. That is true, but what of it? You and I have never seen a man who rose from the dead, but then you and I have never seen a man like Jesus. Don't you see, my friends, what we are trying to establish is not the resurrection of an ordinary man, nor the resurrection of a man about whom we know nothing the resurrection of Jesus. It's unlikely that any ordinary man should rise, but it's unlikely that this man should not rise. And then he says this, it may be said of this man that it was impossible that he should not be holden of death. 
there's anything that we could say about Christ, anything we could say about the Son of God, there is no way that, that, that death could have kept him. There is no way. And, and, and Macon is right in saying that. And I think it's interesting because if what we have today, and whether it's the Word of Faith movement or the New Apostolic Reformation movement or some of these other movements, they're, they're making claims of people rising from the dead. Gunnar and I were watching a latest installment on the, uh, uh, the observations of Asbury. If you have not seen Justin Peters, I think he came out with two days ago, something like that, brother. Uh, he did a, he, he has Josh Buse on there and some other, uh, pastors who have made observations about what's going on there. And they, they, they aired a little bit of a, of a segment of one of the people from Fox News who went down there to report on what was happening. And the comment that by one of the students or one of the attendees, uh, said, I think to Ainsley Earhart, something to the effect of, this is happening and that's happening. Limbs are growing back and other things. And, and, and she's shocked. You can watch the video for yourself, but she's kind of thinking, what, what did you say? So she even has a, you know, a question about it. And when, when the student or this individual is pressed a little bit, when she says, well, what do you mean limbs are growing back? The only thing that she comes back with in her in her retort is that somebody was healed from a sprained ankle. I'm not sure. I've got a sprained ankle. My limb is still there. <laughs> but you can see what you see is the bait and switch, and that's what that that's what goes on in movements like that. Whether it's the Apostolic Reformation, New Apostolic Reformation, the Word of Faith, you know you know that. It's an absolute bait and switch. But they actually claim it goes on all the time, and it's usually something, somebody with someone in some place in the third world that it's difficult to even go and find out about. In fact, James Denny, a great Scottish theologian, said this every Sunday that comes around, and he's talking about the focus where it should be, is a new argument for the resurrection. And the decisive event in the inauguration of the new uh, religion, a new faith took place on that day, and events so divisive to ensure that it displaced the Sabbath. And it did. And that's why we worship the first day of the week. We've talked about that. Well, I want you to notice he's stressing the importance of and affirming that, but he does it by way of talking about the consequences of denial. He kind of turns to the denial phase. I want you to notice for verse 14. He says, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is vain. So we covered that last time, just to point out maybe one thing, that the byproduct is one that causes something, and that's a emptiness or a vain belief. And that word vain in the New American Standard, you might have it in your Bibles as empty, uh, same thing. And so we, we basically will have placed our faith in nothing. And it's, you, you know, it's hard to imagine what nothing is. I was talking to, uh, Abby and I think uh, Emma a week or so ago when we were talking about something and nothing, the term nothing came out and I said, do you want know what the word nothing is? Do you really want to know what nothing means? And she goes, yeah. I said, nothing is what pet rocks dream about. And she looked at me. Of course, pet rocks are way before her time. 
<laughs> That's what nothing is. Nothing is nothing. What if you put your faith in? Is it truly the object of your faith in the fact that Christ has risen from the dead? And then I want you to notice and look down in verse 17. And he says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, you're still in your sin. So you have, by the way, in verse 14 and verse 17, I want you to notice those two different verses. Basically, there are two Greek terms that are used there, and one has the stress on the emptiness of the faith. The other has to do with the futility of the event or the futility of the claim. That's the contrast between, or, or we could say the, the, the similarities between verse 14 and 17. So basically, if we believe in the resurrection and it's not occurred, then our faith is futile. It's in the sense that our faith does not do for us what we thought it would do. So you've got not just the emptiness or, or, or the the, the um, vainness of the faith, but it basically is worthless. There's no merit. There's nothing that helps us in understanding who the God of the universe and God of creation really is by raising his son from the dead. And so... The purpose or the end is not realized. How could you have a realization of the end if that's not true? And that's what he means when he says in verse 17, your faith is futile, it's futility, it's empty in the sense it doesn't do what it's supposed to do. So he he stresses the consequences of that uh, in the denial uh, of the resurrection of Christ. And that's what Paul really is saying. He's like, I mean, he, if you think about it, he's telling the people who have doubts here in the church, look, he says, if Christ isn't risen, you know, we have nothing to preach on. I, you know, I, I'm just a, basically, I'm just a, a windbag. I'm not saying anything relatively good or helpful to you. And, and basically, because of that, therefore, your faith is, has nothing. There's no content there. You've been kind of conned by people who talk about the resurrection of the dead, but your faith is really, uh, has no real object. And so, you know, there's nothing to that. You're, you're still in your sins. And they were all, uh, really believing in, probably in some way, they were probably, really believing in what was the decomposition of the corpse of the uh, kind of the itinerant Jewish carpenter who was turned rabbi, but saying now that he is somehow not risen, he's somebody said something about the fact that he may not actually have raised been raised from the dead. So what kind of faith do you have? What is it you're, you're, you're trusting? How can you trust in a God who says this is going to take place the, the Old Testament scriptures pointing to that reality and yet say, nah, it's, I can't buy it. I can't buy it. I mean, no one can give themselves to somebody who is dead. People do it, though, don't they? People do that today. They do that in, in, in various religious circles. But it's it's not possible to have a saving faith in a, either a dead man or to have saving faith in an empty tomb. You, you have to have faith in the resurrection. You can't expect anything from somebody who's dead. And surely you won't receive anything from a dead man. So what we're talking about, what is the, what is the real issue here? The real issue is, is do you have saving faith? Do you have the ability to say, I rest in this truth, 
This is, the, this is my eternal destiny on the line right here. This is it. Eternal life is what we're talking about. Salvation is what we're talking about. So your faith, if it's empty, my message is empty, and so that's why he says in verse 15, notice there, moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God. And the reason why is because we've testified against God that he raised him from the dead. Now, why that, it has such a fascinating verse to me. I've thought and thought and thought more about that over the last few weeks, more than anything, because he is pointing to the fact that God has testified as a witness to this. And he he is saying that if he didn't rise, you're, you're basically calling God a liar. So not only do we have an empty message, we would have basically a faith that's empty. We would have also a false witness about who the true living God is. And so just to be clear, what does that mean? Well, that would mean that our Lord is an imposter. He's a phony. He's a, he's a sham. He's just another guru figure and really kind of to link him to Yahweh. What Paul was saying there in verse 15, if you try to link Christ uh, to, to Yahweh, you are blaspheming the God of the universe. That's really what you're doing. So you want to talk about God that way. You want to talk about Yahweh in heaven who's raised up his own son by his own testimony. And you're linking the Lord of God of heaven, the covenant-keeping God, Yahweh. You're, you're, you're linking him to, to something that basically Israel regarded as just the one monolithic aspect of God. They saw the Messiah in the in the Old Testament prophecies, yet they denied the fact that he would have to die and would rise again. And the scriptures are clear on that. And so you can't link him with a guru who's dead. You can't link Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, to a you know an itinerant rabbi preacher who did all these miracles and did all these things, and now he's not raised from the dead, whose bones and whose body is decomposing somewhere other than the tomb that he rose from. And and because of that, we'd be false witnesses. So that's blasphemy. And that's why he says what he says in verse 17. And that's simple. That And we read that, we go, that's so simple, but it's so profound. You can't say that the dead do not rise denying Christ's resurrection. You can't say that. You see, he's already been raised. He's already risen from the dead. So you can't say there's no such thing as a resurrection from the dead. Notice verses 18 and 19. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Fallen asleep in Christ. That's the key term. People who die, who are believers in Christ, don't go to the grave. They don't end up, they, we don't say they're in the pit. That is a term that is reserved exclusively, as I mentioned last time, for believers. You don't read, for example, Herod fell asleep. You don't read that. You don't, you don't read, uh, about, you know, some of the other religious leaders who have, or, or uh, uh, political leaders or whoever who fell asleep. Only believers in Christ are referred to as those who have fallen asleep. And then he says in verse 19, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we're of all men most to be pitied. So he uses that word there, and, and the word there is void of useful aim, void of useful effect. We have no effect. There's nothing useful in what we're doing. We're just playing this game called church. 
It's just a mirage. What you're believing is a, is, a, is a mirage. You know what a mirage is. Sometimes you see them driving down a hot asphalt road. Uh, you'll see them out in the wilderness. I've been out in the desert in the, in the heat. And what you what you look ahead and you see what looks like a shimmering sea of water is actually a mirage. It's just the way the, the light is reflecting the heat. And so that's all we're doing if we are preaching this resurrected Christ and he's not not alive. He hasn't risen from the dead. So what do you do? Well, your faith in Christ is supposed to save you. And your faith in Christ is supposed to bring you forgiveness of sin, but it is empty. There's no useful effect. And if it doesn't do that, then the product of that is you are still in your sins. Your sins are still standing between you and the Lord God in heaven. And basically what ends up as a result is you stand condemned. Go back to Romans 4. Go to Romans 4 for a moment. The resurrection is significant because of the Father's acceptance of the Son's work. Romans 4, and I'll say that again because it's an important thing to think about. The significance of the resurrection is based on the Father's acceptance of the Son's work. It's involved in that. Romans 4, are you there? Jump down to verse 25. Paul says, He who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. Stop there. If you have the authorized version, it says he was raised for our justification. Let me read the NAS again. Verse 425 of Romans. He was delivered over because of of our transgressions, and was raised because of our justification. The word in the English for is a word that means a lot of different things. But the word in the original text here is a word that actually means because. That's why the NAS translates that and translates it properly. That's why you really should have a good literal transliteration of a word-for-word dynamic equivalent of what the original language is. Raised for. Why, what, why for? On account of, because of our justification. And it's not that we are justified by his rising. It's not because he rose and therefore... By that rising from the dead, he justified us. That's not it. Understand this. He justified us when he died for our sins. He rose because of that justification. So how are we, how are we justified? It's not because he rose. It's because he said it is finished on the cross. It is finished, it is finished. Yes? Because that work is finished, that's why he rose. Because of that. And that's what Paul says. 
So he accomplished the task in his death, and because of that, he rose. Look at verse 425 again. And that's such a significant thing. We don't sometimes think about that. He was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. That's a great verse to meditate on. (laughs) Raised for, on account of, for our justification. And here's the thing. It's not that we're justified again by his rising. He justified us when he died. I'll say that again, but I want you to think about why Paul says what he says in 1 Corinthians. Go back to 1 Corinthians, but go to chapter 2. This is the significance of that connection between the death and the rising of Christ. 1 Corinthians 2, are you there? Look at verse 2. Paul says, I've determined to know nothing among you except for Jesus Christ and him what? His what? Crucified. Crucifixion is the important work. The resurrection, think about it, the resurrection flows out of that fact that he died on the cross. And of course the satisfying of all the claims of God against me, against you as a sinner, is is in his death. By the way, that's why we preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's why we preach his death. But understand... He rose because of the work that was done on the cross. And that's what Romans 4.25 is saying. He rose in order that God will make it absolutely plain and absolutely understood what happened when he died. You see, The resurrection is actually, think about it, the empty tomb, the resurrection, is the evidence of the work of Jesus Christ that he did by dying and satisfying and appeasing the wrath of God that you and I deserve. That's the distinction. When we look, when you look at a chapter like chapter 15, this is the theological significance of what is emerging here. We, don't, we, we can't gloss that over. Think about it another way. The resurrection is designed to attest to what the Lord Jesus Christ already did on the cross. And so the resurrection is... For Christ, if we put it in simple terms that people often use, the resurrection is basically Christ's amen. The resurrection is Christ's amen. It is finished. And that's what he said on the cross. So the resurrection is God's amen to the words, it is finished. Have you ever thought about it that way? It's a sign he accepted what Christ did for those whom he rose on their behalf. Yes? That's the sign. And and we we look at the resurrection, we think about the resurrection, and we, we have to say, yes, the Father accepted the work that Christ paid for us, for his people. By the way, that's why we celebrate it every Lord's Day. That's why we gather on the first day of the week. We celebrate what he did on the cross, but the resurrection is crucial because it's a testimony to the successful work that was carried out by Christ on the cross. And go over to Acts chapter 2. I want to show you something. I want to go to Acts chapter 2. 
by the way, this is not the only place that this statement is made. Okay. Back in Acts chapter 2, I want you to notice what Peter says. Peter makes a very, very interesting comment here. And I want you to look at Acts 2.24. Peter, in his sermon of Pentecost, says, But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Let me read that again. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. I want you to notice that it's the death of the Son as his as the vicarious substitution that is the grounds for salvation, the resurrection is evidence of it. Peter, in effect, is saying the exact same thing. It's very important. And it's a very important part of preaching the gospel and teaching the gospel because what the apostles were really preaching was that Christ did what was necessary and it was completely sufficient. And so... Your crucifixion of him brings you under con- condemnation. And in that, the resurrection is evidence of that. That's the proof of it. And in that proof, that's why G- the Jews, that's why the Gentile leaders, they were so upset, they were so angry, they were so afraid of what the empty tomb actually meant. They knew what it meant. They knew that he was going about, and and the the apostles were talking about this at the end, that he would have to die and rise again. And that's part of their preaching now, that he has risen, that the proof is there. And, And you know, that's because it's specifically said that God had truly accepted what the Son had done and ultimately rejected what they had done in crucifying him, you see. God was satisfied in the death, the wrath that you and I deserve, and all who would ever believe, don't ever miss that. It's all who would ever believe, past, present, and future. The atonement is a specific atonement. And in in making sure that that atonement is a specific atonement where he dies for his people, one of the byproducts of that is the proof that God raises him from the dead, and that's why the Jews and that's why the Gentiles were so up in arms. They, had, they were so beside themselves that they tried, and then by the way, they still lie about the empty tomb to this day. They have to. You know, they have to because they know exactly what it means. It's the resurrection tied to the work of the Messiah. And that's why that is so critical. And so if Christ is not risen, Paul says, faith is futile. You're still in your sins. I want you to listen to what Job says. Two, two verses from Job. Let me read them and I'll let you, I'll tell you what the verse numbers are. Job says, if I should wash myself with snow and cleanse my hands with lye, yet you would plunge me into the pit and my own clothes would abhor me. Job 30 verses 30 and 31. Job 30. Verses 30 and 31. What can we possibly imagine we could ever do about our sins? Nothing. Wash myself with snow. Cover my hands with lye. That, that product, byproduct of what you make soap from. If I should wash myself with snow 
and cleanse my hands with lie, yet the result would be you would plunge me in the pit. And my clothes would abhor me. I can't cleanse my heart. I can't put away my sins. But he can, you see. And that explains the darkness that kind of enveloped his soul with that cry of anguish, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Bearing sin's judgment, what does he do? He descends to the grave, his body to the grave, his spirit in paradise, his spirit with the Lord. I take issue with some interpretations of that, as you know. I don't believe Christ went to hell. He didn't have to proclaim anything to the demons in hell. I want you to turn to Luke 24 for a moment. And by the way, during that interval, just to be clear, while his body was in the grave, no one in all the world knew whether his work really settled the sin question or not. You realize that? Nobody knew. We wouldn't know now if that resurrection had not occurred. But it's because it did occur, we know. Luke 24, please turn there. This is uh, the two men, the two disciples are on the road, uh, the Emmaus Road. Lord comes and he, near, he speaks to them. You remember what happened, pick up in verse 17, I won't read it all. He said to them, what are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? And they stood still looking sad. One of them named Cleopas answered and said to him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, the things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were still hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all these, this, it's the third day since these things have happened. What do they ask him? What do they basically say to him? Are you, you're the only one in Jerusalem that doesn't know what's going on? Yet, the irony is, he's the only one in Jerusalem who did know what was going on. They were miserable because their hopes were dashed. When he was crucified, he was placed in the tomb. And that two, roughly two ton stone is rolled over there and it's sealed. And they put Roman centurion guards there. Asking him if he's the only one in Jerusalem who doesn't know what's going on. <laughs> I love that. He's the only one who did know what was going on. What a wonderful salvation. If anybody will have to be kept out of heaven because of my sins, it would have to be Jesus. And the only reason why is because he took my sins. But praise be to God, they cannot keep him out. He's already there. So the resurrection is the means by which what? You and I can know that our sins have been forgiven. And that's why, like I said, the first day of the week is significant. We celebrate that. We celebrate the forgiveness of sin because of the connection between the empty tomb and the work of Christ on the cross. And then just to finish a couple of those thoughts there, at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, We've already read it, verses 18 and 19, but I want you to notice the expression, if you go back there to verse 18, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Then those also, I want you to notice that phrase, then those also, which is actually, that's an inference from what he's been talking about 
they not only live in sin, he's just said, if Christ has arisen, your faith is vain, it's empty, it's futile, you're still in your sins. So they not only live in their sins, but ready for this, but the dying ones who have perished are still in their sins. What kind of life do they have? They lived all their life in sins. Constantly committing sin, flowing out of what? An unredeemed heart. And then at the end of it, they perish. What kind of life is that? Constantly sinning, constantly coming under the judgment of God, having no hope in this world. That when you die, there's no relief. And the reason why there's no relief is because you perish, and you perish for eternity. There is no second chance after you stop breathing in this life. So then those who have fallen asleep, the significance is the phrase, in Christ. And by the way, that's that term again for a believer, the, those who have fallen asleep, referring to those who have died in Christ. And it's reserved only for a believer's death. You don't see that in the New Testament again. You don't see that anywhere else. Go back to chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians for, for a moment. Because while they may have died in Christ, they're alive in spirit, Yes. They're with the Lord. The body is asleep, as it were. It's reserved for believers, 1 Corinthians 11. This is exactly why, in the context of the Lord's Supper, Paul makes this reference, and this is a significant one. He says in verse 1130, For this reason many among you are sick, and a number of you are weak and sick, and a number of you what? Sleep. Believers who died... You ready for this? Who were judged for their disobedience after salvation. Do you understand that? These are believers who were judged for their disobedience after they were saved. But they were believers. They trusted Christ. They belonged to the family of God. Right? But they fell asleep. By the way, it's the same exact word that's used for Stephen in Acts. That Stephen, when he was being rocked to sleep, stoned to death, Stephen fell asleep. That's a glorious expression if you really think about it. It's what happens, isn't it, for in Christ. But I want you to think about the contrast and I want you to notice, now I'm going to finish with this. Look how Paul puts this. By the way, now I think you can understand why I couldn't finish this two weeks ago because of what's here. Because if there's no resurrection, then those who have died in Christ have what? They've perished. And if there's no resurrection, he's pointing to the fact that the marvelous way of describing not just the believer's death reveals that the body has fallen asleep, the spirit has gone on to be with the Lord. He says that exact thing in Second Corinthians, that for those who are... Um, absent from the body, are present with the Lord, right? So, to awaken, if there is no resurrection, here's the implication, if there is no resurrection, if the dead are not raised, if Christ hasn't been raised, you awaken to face eternal judgment. That's exactly it. What a horrible way to wake up. Talk about a nightmare to rest in our Lord, to wake up after physical death, only to realize we picked the wrong horse. 
And then with no resurrection, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. They not only lived all their lives in sin, but the dying ones have perished. And that's the exact same term he uses back in 1 Corinthians 1.18, by the way. That the word of, cro- of cr- the cross is foolish- foolishness to those who are perishing. Same exact word. So what you see, what you have in effect, is that if that's true, then you're in your perishing state, all of you, you're still perishing. And so every one of you is perishing. Your body is perishing. If you haven't believed in Christ, you're perishing totally, though. And if you're not a believer in Christ, you're perishing completely. You're on, you're on the way. You haven't perished yet, but you are perishing. Well, the beautiful part is, and we haven't gotten to this, we'll talk about this in the future as we get further into this chapter about the fact that we are going to be given another body. We're going to be given a body in which we're able to live eternally in glory, in a glorified body, and completely without sin. What a day that'll be. Someone said that if Jesus stayed dead, there were only two possible conclusions. Either he was not the sinless person everyone thought he was, or his attempts to atone for the sin of the world by his death was not met with divine approval. But the scriptures say that he has been raised from the dead. And we've hoped in Christ. And if you look at verse 19 of chapter 15, one of the implications of that verse is that For those of us who have hoped in Christ, if this isn't true, we are meant to be most pitied, but the opposite is true as well. If Christ is raised, what a glorious truth that is. It's not that we are meant to be most pitied. We should be the most joyful and jubilant because of these truths. And you and I, we're going to suffer for the faith in various ways. Every soul who's believed in Christ has known what it is to suffer for the faith on some level, some more than others. But if it's really true that he has not been raised from the dead, then we've wasted our lives. We've wasted our lives in the offense of the cross, and then only to find out that our faith in him doesn't have any content. It's empty. It's vain. It doesn't do what it was supposed to do. And we are would-be men of most pity, but how important is the resurrection, you see? This is God's way of saying he did the work. And by God saying he did the work, then trusting in him, you have the assurance of eternal life. And that's the truth of what Paul is saying here. So may God help us to not only cling to that titer, but to understand it in its full ramifications for our future. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you so much for this marvelous text, Lord. Thank you for the beauty of what it reveals to us. Help us think about these things more, Father, that you would be honored because of what it's doing in our hearts and in our minds by the sanctification that your word is doing in us. We give you the glory, and worthy is the Lamb, Father. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.